Welcome to the Work Matters Podcast. In each episode, talking with thought leaders and executives, PurposeWorks founder Thomas Bertels explores what it takes to make work more productive, valuable, impactful, and meaningful. Let's begin the conversation. So welcome to the Work Matters Podcast. My guests today are Solange Charas and Stella Lupeshore, and we're going to talk about humanizing human capital. Solange is the founder and CEO of HC Moneyball, as an adjunct professor, governance researcher, a board director. I think a lot of your work is around human capital. And Stella, you're a thought leader, speaker, educator, futurist, really on a, on a mission to make the, the workplace more human through the use of design thinking and technology and obviously data and to create more inclusive workplaces. You both wrote a very interesting book called Humanizing Human Capital. So first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. Humanizing Human Capital, um, what's, what's, what's the story behind the book? So we were introduced by a mutual acquaintance who I had known for probably 25 years. And still, I think you knew him for less than that. Um, and he uh, thought that we would like each other, that we sort of, I guess, spoke the same language. And so he introduced us. And from the moment we met each other, it was love at first sight. We really connected. We really liked each other. We really shared a common way of thinking through problems, both combining the analytic and also the qualitative and the quantitative simultaneously. And as Celis would say, we were finishing our, each other's sentences, even in our first meetings. I'm a data wonk. I like quantitative analytics. I like anything that requires math and statistical analysis. Um, and Stella is um, a, more of a futurist, more of the qualitative side to create context for understanding um, what the data shows. And it was just a really nice um, sort of complement in terms of our approaches and our interests. And one day I texted Stella and I said, let's write a book. And she wrote back to me and wrote about what? <laughs> and I said, the intersection of what you're passionate about and what I'm passionate about. And that's what started the whole process. And I guess, Stella, what it took us like three years from that first text message to actually be engaged in the writing process and then another year to actually get it published. You know, as a researcher, I'm always looking for the gap. And what I noticed at the, is that there were a lot of books on HC analytics, human capital analytics. There were a lot of books on the future of work but there wasn't a book that actually combined the two. And we felt that it was really important for organizations to be able to use human capital analytics to hear the signals within their own organizations so that they had a baseline or a foundation to consider what they need to do to move their organization successfully into the future. And so that's how the book came about is filling a gap and marrying our passions into something that we thought would be very practicable for organizations. Yeah, one thing I love about the book is that, that you're really starting out with, with, you know, some of the big trends that are transforming how we work, demographics, digitization, uh, datafication, and disintermediation, but then really unpack that. And, 
and, and translate that into, right? So what are actually the implications, right? Why, why are we talking about this? Um, and then take it even one step further and really translate it a little bit into, I guess, a set of rules, right? For like 21st century workforce, right? And, and in a very practical fashion, right? Humanizing human capital, right? Why do we need to care about these pesky people that we have in our organizations? Um, why does this matter? I'll take a stab at providing a little bit more context around the the those four Ds, and and then Salange can translate it into the uh, the CEO leadership language as well. So when we think about the changes that are impacting the access to labor force, the access to consumers, the access to new talent, fresh pipeline, we are as a society in general, are a very interesting point in time. We are seeing uh, a dramatic drop of uh, a number of children per uh, per women being um, uh, brought to life. That we see uh, the longevity uh, continue to grow. And from demographic composition perspective, it's it starts changing the dynamics between a social protection system, between uh, employment uh, and employers, between governments that have to figure out where the ta- uh, taxes are going to come from, where the consumers are going to uh, uh, consume healthcare and other social protection uh, services. And we've seen how women left in throves the labor market during the pandemic, and it's going to take time for them to return. So all our diversity and inclusion uh, progress that we've made up until the the pandemic started or wiped out. Uh, we have seen the um, migration of people from metropolitan areas to second tier cities for a better quality of life, for more space, to be closer to the family. A lot of them may not necessarily move back to the previous locations, may not be willing to be crammed in a in a you know small space or have long commutes. So a lot of the preferences and, and expectations from the work environment are changing as well. When it comes to technology, digitization, right, that allowed us to actually survive and continue to work. Uh, for those who had the privilege to be able to work from home. The pandemic is receding and we're seeing more and more people uh, or more and more organizations asking their employees to come back to an office. We're seeing the tension because people realize they can continue to be as productive, they can have the flexibility, the work-life balance, um, and not having a choice where to work from is making them think differently about who they want to work with and where where they want to bring their talent and and, um, and their time and energy. So technology is disrupting not only the consumer experience and the way people engage with brands, but also employee and worker experience. And all of these interactions are creating vast amount of data. And we have... Um, you know, significant storage capacity in the cloud. We have a lot of new tools that are emerging that help us make sense of this data and detect signals that then can inform organizational decisions, can inform our own decisions on how we uh, behave and perform and uh, little nudges when we need to stand up after 90 minutes of sitting in front of the computer or, um, you know, reduce the notifications and disruptions, etc. So the data is... Um, or datafication, the third D, is really uh, our ability to now 
make sense of all the digital footprint that we leave behind. Um, and of course, it comes with a lot of benefits, but also it comes with potential risks and downside of uh, making decisions that may be biases or maybe perpetuating the the societal disparities that uh, um, are represented in that data. And then this intermediation is really elimination of the intermediary from the value chain. Um, perfect example, uh, additive manufacturing. If we think about traditional manufacturing, right, you may have a factory somewhere in a remote location where the labor cost is cheap or the cost of production or access to the uh, raw materials is, is more readily available and that you have a whole supply chain and transportation around the world to move these goods from where it's been produced and manufactured to where the destination consumers will, will use it. As opposed to looking at um, establishing a, a, a 3D printing uh, facility somewhere in the proximity of where you need those uh, uh, products and just truly bring them on demand when you need it. It's important to pay attention to those trends. Unfortunately, we tend to think, oh, well, these are not going to impact me in the next quarter uh, or next, you know, two quarters. Therefore, I'm not going to really pay attention to. But when they do start taking effect, they become really, really meaningful and demand organizations to change a lot in terms of how they um develop their products, how they message their current and potential workforce, where they go to hire, uh, you know, it, it will inform their uh, physical footprint, it will inform their workplace practices. So it's important, for, especially from my job perspective, to pay attention. Human resources, or what we like to call human capital, is not an easy subject. It's very complex, as you can hear. There are a lot of things that actually impact uh, the relationship between employee and employer and employees work and their ability to work and employers ability to manage employees. So there's, there's, it's so complex that it's a little daunting. And that's what we hear from a lot of people is how do I start? Where do I start? How do I do this? And, you know, the old expression, when you're in a hammer, the world looks like a nail. For me, the best way to remove complexity from an issue is to do data analytics, is to analyze the data that's there. And the data will give you insight, will help you sort through what's real, what's the core driver or the, the key concepts that we need to think about versus what's noise. You know, like uh, Harvard Business School cases, which I used to teach, they give you a lot of information. Much of it is really not useful in solving the problem. And that's what I think HR people face every day. They're bombarded with information. They're bombarded with people saying, you have to do training. You have to do mobility. You have to do um, you know, compensation right. You have to do um, you know, skills development, skills retraining. That's the only way you'll be successful. Well, each organization is different. And what Stella and I talk about in the book is to turn your attention away from best practices and turn your attention to best evidence. Your organization is the best source of information for you to be able to make informed and, I guess, accurate decisions 
about what's right for your organization, not looking outside to somebody else. Now, of course, you're not going to ignore the fact that there are things going on external to the organization, like like um, uh, Stella was just talking about with the change in demographics and digitization and you know democratization of data and also the disintermediation idea. So there's a lot of noise going out in the world. And what we propose is that using a data analytics approach helps you hear the signals within your own organization and also helps you gain some business insights about human capital performance so that you can take the right action that generates outcomes, right? And those outcomes support the business or the you know the business in its mission and vision. So it's very confusing, but we can reduce that confusion. We can cut through the complexity by adopting a data analytics mindset. And what I hear from a lot of HR people is, if I wanted to do math, I wouldn't go into HR. We need to make it more accessible to people. And I think that's something that the book does. It makes thinking about data and using data much more accessible and a step-by-step approach to not actually doing the data analytics, but constructing the models, constructing your, your thoughts around what do I want to look at? What's my hypothesis? What do I think is impacting something so that you can cut through the clutter? I think your book does a lot more than that, though, right? Than just to advocate for for a very data driven perspective. For example, right? I think you have this very interesting chapter around using data to understand and improve employee performance. And I think there's like two schools of thought there, and and one is very popular right now, coming out of the pandemic, that we're we're thinking that maybe right all these people don't do as good a job as as we think they should be doing. So we're logging every keystroke. And, and, you know, using that to track like, productivity and manage it that way, right? And let them know that, you know, you're, you're right below the, 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 the rate that we expect, which seems to be a really dominant theme right now. Right? A lot of companies like have, have rolled out these systems. But, but then you're also offering a, a, a different solution, if I understood this right, right? to say, right, don't try to like, micromanage people and, and run into right, all the privacy and surveillance topics there, but rather provision that data for people so that they can use that for self-improvement. And, and I think that's a topic that I find super important, right? It goes back to like the elements of a good, well-designed job, right? You got to know how you're doing. You need that direct feedback. Ideally, that comes from the work itself, not from a supervisor. And, and I was really excited to see in, in your book, you're talking about that, right? How that can be done. Maybe can you, can you hum us a, a few bars on, on that topic, please? Let me start with an example. Uh, there was an article uh, that I read recently uh, from uh, HBR talking about the contextual switching, the context switching that we experience in using apps and our technologies. And uh, some of the statistics were absolutely not surprising. People on average switch about 1,200 times between the apps and, and, and solutions they use. Each time you switch, it takes about two seconds to refocus your mind on whatever is the next screen. 67% of times we switch, we only stay on that next app for about 11 seconds, and then we move on to another one. But it's 
interesting for me to know that that's how bad I, <laughs> I'm using my technology and it's going to inform me uh, on how I can reduce notifications or maybe close certain things down so they don't uh, um, interrupt my flow of work and I can be better as a result of this as opposed to having some tool monitoring my activities and then having my manager tell me, hey, you switched 1,200 times today. That will feel invasive, uh, first of all. Number two, it will have completely the opposite effect that I would want to have. You're monitoring me? I'm going to show you. <laughs> the companies that are not willing to have a shift in the relationship and that social contract between employees and employers are going to lose. And we're seeing so many trends now around employee agency, employee voice. Yeah, so we're seeing the great resignation and we're seeing quiet quitting and we're seeing people uh, opting for gig uh, work instead of W-2 wage earner work. The other day I read something called the great breakup. Uh, senior female uh, executives, managers are just leaving their companies. It's like they're breaking up. One of the things that we're seeing is a shift in control from the company to the worker. And companies don't like that. That's why they do that tracking and monitoring because they feel that they're not in control anymore. And we had somebody call this vindictive. The companies are taking vindictive steps. I don't necessarily think that it's meant to be vindictive. It's just a way of organizations trying to reclaim control, right? We hear CEOs say, everyone's coming back to the office. That's a form of control. And instead of saying, and we're seeing characteristics of losing companies and winning companies, instead of saying, how can I support you in being the most productive you can be that ultimately benefits the organization? right? Which is a change in the social contract from come back to the office. And if you don't, I'm firing you. It seems to me that we all, right, since the beginning of time, quite frankly, wanted to have autonomy and agency and do some meaningful work. When I started my career, I think there were just a lot more constraints around that people felt, well, I have to, for example, if I have a horrible job, I can't quit it because I need to have at least a year or two in my resume, right? So I feel like the, the, the psychological needs were always there, but they were like kept under wraps through workplace conventions and the imbalance of power. And the pandemic has moved the scales quite a bit. So that people now feel, A, life is short, right? I don't want to be so do something that's that's silly and stupid and waste my time. Secondly, there's a lot of people out there that want to hire me for my skills. So there's I think the, the demand has shifted. This emergence of people looking for purpose and demand purpose in the workplace. It just strikes me as that a lot of organizations are not prepared for that. Where's the HR community on this? You, you both have experience both as HR professionals and as you know, advisors and, and consultants and teachers. But, but where do you see the HR professionals in, in this? Are they ready to like, step up to the plate and, and take a more active role in designing better workplaces? Is it like, well, there's like three innovators and there's 99 laggards? What, what's your perspective? Things that Stella and I have in common, we both uh, work at the conference board. So we see the best of the best organizations in terms of HR and in terms of commitment to HR. We also both are educators. So we see the kids that are getting their master's degrees. Sorry, I call them kids. They're kids to me. 
who are getting their master's degree, who are just starting their, their journey. Um, and for me, and I think for Stella as well, I'll speak for her, that we get a lot of intrinsic uh, benefit from thinking about shaping the future professionals in this, in this field. So, you know, for me, it's a personal commitment to make sure that I'm creating a cohort of HR professionals that will take jobs in the future that have the right mindset. So I, I don't know that I could even throw out a number and say, you know, 50% or 60% or 70%. I think that HR people are well-intentioned. I think they go into HR because they do want to make a difference and they do want to have an impact, not on necessarily on the organization, but on other human beings, right? Because if they wanted to do math, they wouldn't go into HR. They don't want to do math. They don't want to do analytics. They do want to serve others, other human beings. So I think we start from a place where there's intention to actually support another human or humans in the aggregate. And let me just put a little caveat here. The reason that we called it humanizing human capital is because we get a lot of feedback from HR people that says that say doing analytics is dehumanizing. And our perspective is it's actually very humanizing because you actually understand the employees by segments and the majority of the employees so that you can better serve all versus serving a small subset of it. So we're trying to change that mindset. I think what's happening is that there's a clash between what well-intentioned HR people want to do and the policies and processes that the organization has institutionalized. So let me just tie back that concept to what you were saying about servant leadership. Servant leadership requires that you actually understand and address the needs of different groups in your organization, right? The young people, the old people, the people in finance, right? We can segment and group like kinds of employees together, depending on how you filter. But the idea about servant leadership is to support the needs of different people. And human resources now adopts a very standardized approach to policy and program design, a one size fits all. We have one type of benefits, maybe you have some choices, but it's one type of benefit program. We have one type of compensation program. We have one type of training program, right? We have one type of mobility or promotion readiness program. And what Stella and I talk about is that as human capital becomes more central to the business model or this um, human capital centric approach, we have to move from standardized to personalized. And that's what I think is happening. There's a mismatch between what human capital professionals know intuitively they need to do to support and serve their constituents, their customers, the internal employees, and the structures that are containing them. And that's why I think it's so exciting that human capital is being raised to a level at the board, at C-suite, investors, customers, candidates, strategic partners, right? It's gaining that attention that will actually create the impetus 
for breaking the system and building it so that it is a personalized servant leadership approach that supports and enriches and allows employees to thrive in those environments. And I want to add to that dimension of uh, looking through the lens of the worker, right? Typically, we do transformation and deploy technologies and put measurements in place only from the lens of HR processes. And if we're looking through that lens, that's exactly what we optimize. And uh, that may not necessarily uh, provide the experience for workers in the context of their work environment, right? And we now have the technology, we have the ability to glue together all of these data sets along the life cycle of the uh, worker relationship with the organization and start making very different decisions. Uh, and, and instead of saying, you know, what is our hiring pipeline? Yes, that's important as program efficiency uh, matters and we need to keep track of, an eye on that. But what it's like to be a candidate going through this pipeline? What if I get ghosted or the manager doesn't show up for my interview or I don't get the offer. Nobody uh, tells me that I've been, you know, uh, put on, on <laughs> not going to move to the next uh, phase. Um, experience measurements also are critical because it will uh propagate the, uh, the, that experience to the rest of the world and other candidates who may consider coming, even if the person had a bad experience through the recruitment, when they come inside the organization, maybe they got the job, it will linger. That negative impression will continue to accumulate and pile on until people are going to disengage and say, I'm out of here. This is just too difficult, not worth my time. You, you triggered one other thought there which is, um, and I see that in my work, right? Because I come like out of the, the process improvement world, right? Where you design business processes. And, and, and so my epiphany was that actually as we design work, we never really look at kind of like the implications for the employee. I might have a very efficient process. It might be horrible for the person in there because it sucks all the autonomy out of it. And I think you have like a similar lens, right? Where you're saying, well, Right, we, we we looked at it through the lens of the employer, right, and 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 designed so like our work offering along those lines, and we never even bothered to check how that looks from the other end, and and right, the big shift is that now not only do we care, but we also have through the data, the analytics, the ability to really get deeply under the hood, right? and not just make just like one global statement, but actually make very targeted specific choices that, that, that target specific employee groups and, and needs. And so it's like to become it's like a little bit like what people on the marketing side call like, you know, catering to a segment size of one, right? I think, do you see companies doing this in, in any real meaningful fashion that they actually kind of drill it down to smaller and smaller employee populations? I see a lot of organizations being very mindful of their employee experience. So a lot more listening uh, to the employee voice, doing um, not just surveys, but meaningful surveys, mindful surveys, um, being responsible about feedback to the employees um, and really listening. Right. So uh, I worked at one point, I worked for GE Capital and um, I was there in the uh, I guess the early 90s, 
And um, I'm part of the GE Alumni HR Network. So I often go to their reunions when they have them and hear about the new things that GE is doing. And I remember about 15 years ago, GE started doing a listening campaign. And I thought it was fascinating that they were actually, instead of having messages go from the top of the house, from the executive management down, they were actually listening to the employees as the messages were flowing up. And the management was actually basing their philosophies, their approaches on that listening campaign because they were trying to serve those employees. And they also realized that those employees and social media shaped the brand of the company. You know, I was just at a conference, a conference board conference yesterday uh, called Engaged at Work, and it was really all about listening. It wasn't, what do we need to do to get people, you know, to come to work in the morning and to do their jobs better? It was really focused on what are the needs of the employees and how can we understand that better so that we can create the environment for them to be able to thrive and want to stay with us and want to promote the brand outside of work. And I think we're, we're beginning to see that. And Stella would argue, so let me argue it for you, that because we have a shrinking labor pool, we have to really focus on doing much more around engaging and retaining the talent that we have. Because it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. The population is shrinking. The baby boomers are retiring. The, the millennials don't want to work for the man. The man. They're opting out for gig work, and it's just making it harder to find sustainable talent. Yeah, I, I, I think you're spot on there. Um, and it's interesting. I, I, I was working this week with a client, and one thing that really impressed me was them, that they have people who have been with the company for 15, 20 years. Um, and I have a few clients like that, and there's incredible power in this, especially if people not just been stuck in one role, but really had all the different jobs in the company, right? So they ran R&D, they worked in operations, now they're in sales and marketing, right? And, and so um, I, I find that, uh, and, and those are incredibly strong teams. And then you take the flip side, right? Where right, you have a lot of people that have been taking, been in the role for like a year. And in most organizations, it takes about six months to, to even become effective, right? So, so I, 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 there's like some incredible churn there. And, and I feel like a lot of traditional um, people analytics metrics don't really pick up on that. Uh, any any thoughts on that um, from through the analytics lens? Yes. So I'm happy you asked. Um, HR does a really good job doing descriptive analytics, just tallying up what's at the bottom of the column when they're looking at things, but they don't do a very good job at descriptive analytics, which is really combining data so that you can understand the root cause of the behavior that you're observing. Um, and so that's the first thing is that we're not really looking for root cause. We're just trying to answer the question, what happened instead of why did it happen? The second thing that I think is it, uh, to HR's detriment is that we measure HR performance to HR goals. We should not be doing HR for HR. We should be doing HR to support the, the company, the enterprise. So I'm quoting Dave Ulrich now, who says in the service of, right? So HR in the service of the customer, HR in the service of the business, HR in the service of the product. Um, and I think that that's, um, 
that's where there's a big disconnect is understanding how human capital actually impacts the enterprise. And I'm happy that you asked that because, you know, one of the things that we look at and we talk about in the book is correlating, linking what's happening in HR to what's happening at the company level. And we provide a whole bunch of measures. Um, one of the most um, easiest and probably the most informative measure is something called HCROI or human capital return on investment. We give the algorithm of how to calculate HCROI in the book. So if you want to understand whether or not the dollars that you invest in people are actually driving profitability, that's the best measure you can use. And what Stella and I found in the research that we did, again, for the conference board, is that organizations that adopt human capital analytics in managing the human capital function have HCROI it's three times greater than HCROI of companies that don't use data analytics to inform their decision-making. What does that mean? Finance will allocate more money to your HR programs if you can prove that the return that they'll get from, from giving you the money is greater than any place else in the organization, right? So in HR, you want to get your programs funded, you have to show that there's a return. And number two, employees want to work for organizations that invest in them, right? And this is a perfect measure of how much companies actually do the right thing around HR. I think that's really interesting. And I think that's also a trend that at least based on the few data points that I see, uh, I think is really emerging. Um, I, I've never seen companies invest in and improving the actual work experience of their employees without like having a dollar and cent business case behind it. And I know that actually your analytics work might help with the dollar and cent business case, but now I actually see clients who say like, listen, it's like we need to redesign our processes, but we also need to make sure that the jobs that we're designing as a result of that are really good, intrinsically motivating jobs, or we want to digitize the, 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 the way the work gets done in the lab. But the reason I want to do it because people do silly stuff they need to write check out equipment and fill out paper forms and then might run around with memory sticks. And right, that's a bad use of, of human's time, right? But it's not driven by, we're going to save 2,000 hours that are worth X dollars, right? It really seems to be driven by, we can't let people do stupid stuff, right? Which I think is really uh, interesting. And I think it's probably like in the same vein. And, and, and what I also hear you is that, 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 you know, there's also an opportunity to actually make this, uh, it's like a, a for-profit venture, so to speak, by putting in the metrics and actually linking like the employee experience right to business performance in a much clearer way that that's like, you know, also moves us away from this whole notion of like, oh, people are right easily replaceable and, and they're a cost, right? And actually get to the point of like, if they're human capital, then let's start measuring it and, and, and protecting it, right? We're protecting capital but we really don't protect our investment in human beings. So I'll give you an example. I, when I was the chief human resources officer for an insurance company, I actually turned my HR department into a profit center. Not only did I turn it into a profit center that was self-supporting, self-funding. So we made more money in our profit center uh, than we needed to pay the salaries of my whole HR staff. 
Um, but I also showed my CEO and my CFO my return on investment in human capital so they could see, oh, I can invest in this. I can invest in buying everybody new computers or I can invest in a training program. What's going to give me a bit better return on investment? And I had no trouble getting funding for any of my programs. When I joined the firm, our attrition rate was 38%. 90% of that was voluntary attrition. By the time I left the organization, we were down to 10% attrition and 90% of that attrition was involuntary. So we changed the rate and the nature of people leaving us. And that had a huge material impact on the organization because I didn't have to recruit every day. I didn't have to train every day. I didn't have to lose productivity every day. I was actually creating value for the organization. And that's how we need to think about HR. Unfortunately, I think we're still think about it as that department over there. And, you know, people say HR needs to have a seat at the table. I say HR is the table. Is the table. You can't do anything without employees in an organization. We are core. Listen, thank you so much. So, you know, for our listeners, right, here's the book. I've read it. I think it's good. It's a great book. So if you want to take a look into like a little bit the future of uh, human resources and, and human capital management. Um, I think it's a fascinating read. Uh, you know, I really, really appreciate the two of you for taking the time to share your perspective and your thoughts with us. Thank you so much, Sloan and Stella. And, and all the best with the book. It's been out for three or four weeks. And um, so thank you so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Excellent questions. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you did, be sure to subscribe, like, share, or comment. Until next time, let's make work matter.